hey now, you are listening to screen watching, or if you're my dog, you're watching it from the nearby couch. It's a weird week for reviews on a podcast. We've got two huge new titles playing in the cinema. We've got a reboot of the Saw franchise starring Chris Rock and Samuel L. Jackson. There's the Angelina Jolie star, Those Who Wish Me Dead. And there's the huge new Barry Jenkins TV series, The Underground Railroad. There's also big news regarding the Golden Globes. Might they be dead? We'll find out. There's all this and more on a very big screen watching. This is not like TV only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. This is Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett. And joining me is the reboot of the Simon Foster franchise. It's the imaginatively titled Simon Foster. Sir, how are you doing? Good to see you, Dan Barrett. Good to be talking to all the screen watchers. It is a very busy week, as you say, here on the Screen Watching podcast. Um, You've got your way. You might have got your way with the Golden Globes. They seem to be on the outer. Even Tom Cruise agrees with you. Uh, We'll be talking about that a little bit later on. Boy, going down the list of things we've got to talk about. Big week at the cinemas, as you mentioned. Where to see Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Hey, welcome to the 1980s. Um, And lots more to talk about as well. Who's having a birthday this week? Hmm, Australia's own Kate Blanchett. We'll get to more of that later. Hey, can I tell you a story before we get started? Let's do story time. It's 2014, 2015. I went to buy a bagel from a chain, it was like a store inside the Brisbane My Centre called Brumby's Go. It was basically a place, because you know when you go to a bakery and you're there waiting for hours to get a baked good, this, you don't have to worry about the weights. You can just go there and spend your money at the counter and just take something away. What an idea. But they had these bagels, which, look, I've had bagels before. These weren't bagels. This was just baked bread in a round circle shape and with some, like, cheese on top of it. I got annoyed and I started a bit of a social campaign talking about the fact that these these aren't bagels that they're selling. Stay with us, folks. Got picked up by Mumbrella. There was lots of folks out there who were aware of my Brumbies issues. It's a joke that's referred to regularly by my friends to this day. But the takeaway from why I'm talking about this is... I waged campaign against them. I waited them out. Within a year, that store went under and disappeared. I've been waging war against these Golden Globes. The Golden Globes now, they're probably not coming back next year. All I'm saying is, and excuse the language, don't fuck with Dan Barrett is what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly right. There's a warning to you, small business owners of Australia and the (laughs) Hollywood foreign press. Don't F with Dan Barrett. That was an interesting story. I thought we had a new sponsor there for a minute, and then I realised that you sent them under, so I guess not. Um, Enjoy your bagels, everyone. We should get straight into our reviews. (laughs) It's... Thanks. Okay, so Simon, I said this at the very top of the podcast. It's a weird week. We've got two big movies, and you and I had like a, we'll say the most heated animated discussion we've ever had. It was via text message. It was barely anything. But uh, we were just trying to work out, like, what is the biggest movie of this week? And when was the last time we even had a big movie of the week, let alone two, which are vying to be like the big box office win? You make a good point. It it feels very much like 2019 at the moment. There are two big films in cinemas. Now, you had your heart set on Spiral, The Book of Saw being the big film. We'll get to that a little bit later. I'm more inclined to think that Angelina Jolie's Those Who Wish Me Dead will be the film of the week. I'm not gonna hurt you. I wanna see where the blood's coming from. It's not my blood. You in trouble? Anyone else in trouble? 
my dad said, if anything happened, I should find someone I could trust. Are you someone I could trust? This is the story of uh, Angelina Jolie. She plays a forest ranger, a fire spotter, high up in her tower overlooking the Rockies wilderness. Um, she's got her own dark past in a previous um, a fire rescue. She was unable to save a, a young family. She's carried that burden with her uh, all through her professional career. And then stumbling into the woods is a young man, a young teenager, who is being chased by two vicious assassins, played by Aidan Gillen and uh, Nicholas Holt. And what ensues is a, a, a thrilling chase through the, the wilderness um, with a, a bushfire lit by the assassins bearing down on everyone involved. I had high hopes for this because it's a Taylor Sheridan film and he's done some great stuff in the past, um, notably Helen Highwater, the Jeff Bridges uh, film with Chris Pine. Um, so he knows how to sort of dig into the, 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 the deep west of America and create these really vivid characters. But with this one, he just seems to be going for the bucks, I've got to say. This really feels like a big, dumb Hollywood movie, which is not what I was expecting from Taylor Sheridan. Angelina Jolie's not above that. She's done plenty of those in the past, and she gives her all in this film in some pretty big action scenes. But overall, I've got to say, considering the cast involved and, and the, the, the pedigree of everybody involved, this is a, a bit of a bewildering experience. It just is a clunky bit of storytelling with some very dodgy special effects. No, they, they seem to have got the eyes right in CGI's, but they... Haven't got the fire right yet, and and overall, it's um, I think it's a a bit of a stumble. So I actually caught this over the weekend. I really actually quite liked it. So <laughs> I knew that I knew that you weren't you weren't a fan because you'd gone and seen the preview screening, and then I saw a Mother's Day screening. And let me tell you, there weren't m many mothers in the crowd that I saw at the <laughs> one session in the afternoon. I really kind of liked it. So I agree with you that it's probably not quite at the standard of other Taylor Sheridan joints. So if people don't really know Taylor Sheridan, he's the guy that did the aforementioned Hell or High Water, but Sicario, which is the thing that like absolutely sort of is the bee's knees as far as I'm he concerned. He wrote that, didn't he? Yeah. He wrote that. Also Yellowstone, which the TV series, the Kevin yeah. Costner, Great. he's the vision behind that. Wind River, which I haven't seen, uh, but I hear good things about that yeah. as well. Generally, his stories are very much telling stories of uh, what they call the flyover states in the US. So they're not coastal stories. It's what's happening in middle America, particularly happening in sort of rural to regional types of areas. Mm. And I think this definitely falls into that bucket of storytelling. But instead of having a little bit more of a sort of social commentary like Hail or High Water did, or Sicario, which has a very sort of pointed commentary at the way the um, US military involves themselves in various issues. So in that instance, it was the Mexican drug cartels. This doesn't really tend to have any sort of commentary at play here. It's very much a traditional Hollywood pot boiler um, murder crime story. Mm. And I was there for it. Like there was... I don't want to give away one of the real sort of secrets of it, but there was a character who, as soon as she was introduced, I was like, well, this character's a goner in the first 10, 15 minutes. But the character became a very integral, vibrant part of the story. And I saw this film with my wife and both of us were there cheering from our cinema seats. And we both had a great time with this film. It was, uh, I guess, surprising to hear that you were so down on it. But also if you were coming to it for like a pure Taylor Sheridan experience as he's delivered to a center past, it's certainly not that. But I think yeah. for a, it, it's, it's better than a generic actioner, but it's probably not necessarily a special actioner. You're absolutely right, and I'm probably the first to admit that Sheridan is is 
you know, he's one of my big hopes for the next 10 years of Hollywood. I, based on his what he's put out so far, I did have high hopes for this film, that it was going to be something more than just um, uh, a firefighter and a teenage boy on the run from the bushfire and the bad guys, which it isn't any more than that. That's exactly what it is. Um, and, I, I mean, you're right. In the preview audience that I went to, the there was some cheering. There was a, a general sense of involvement in the film. So I think it plays to that popcorn thriller audience you know entirely um, satisfactorily uh, but in every other regard I just think it's um, it's a bit of a low bar for him which is a shame I'm looking forward to what he does in the future um, don't be put off by my sort of meanderings this is a uh, this is you know you'll be able to see this on the big screen and it does look great on the big screen so um, maybe check out those who wish me did and prove me wrong the fire special effects, I didn't really have a huge problem with it at the cinema, but I do know as soon as I watch it on TV, it's going to look fake as. Now, Simon, let's move on. I want to have a talk to you about The Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad is the first TV series from Academy Award-nominated director Barry Jenkins. It's based on the Colson Whitehead book of the same name. There is nothing here but suffering. Pain and suffering. It is time to go. Girl in that bulletin is wanted for the murder of a child. As with the book, the Underground Railroad tells the story of slavery from an alternate reality viewpoint. The Underground Railroad in real life was a metaphor for the underground systems of safe houses and identified safe routes that enabled slaves to hide and escape as they sought their freedom. Only in this story, this is an actual secret railway, complete with an actual train, Toot Toot. Through the series, we watch as two slaves use the railroad to escape a farm in Georgia. Now, let's just cut to the chase on this one. The Underground Railroad is an incredible filmed work. Everything clicks into place from the visually dynamic cinematography to the strong, understated performances of the cast through the structure and execution of the series as a whole. Even the sound design, which has extreme moments of quietness that's punctuated by the sound of cicadas, is executed perfectly. This is a genuinely magnificent work, and if you consider yourself an enthusiast when it comes to TV and film, put this at the top of your must-watch list. All of that out of the way, I want to engage in some real talk here. Something you're not going to find in a lot of reviews is this. This is a difficult TV show to watch and engage with, if we can even call this a TV show. Television shows are constructed differently to film. Nothing's more frustrating than hearing a creative say that their show is really a 10-hour movie, TV shows have episodic elements to them, they have multi-act structures inherent in each of those episodes, and they traditionally are filmed differently too, with close-ups of actors and that edited to switch perspectives and angles with greater speed. And then there's our relationship with TV versus film, that's also quite different. When you watch it at home on your television, there's a greater sense of equality between the two. But film does live outside of the home TV viewing experience. We also watch it projected up on massive screens in theatres. I'm certainly no purist believing in the sanctity of the theatre experience, but when you watch a movie or a show on the big screen, your relationship with it changes. You're giving yourself over to the screen, your stature is diminished. In your lounge room, you and your TV are similar in size. When you're at the cinema, that relationship has changed. And because it's changed, a filmmaker can present stories to you in a different way, especially when you know that you'll have viewed the whole presentation in a single-serving two-ish hours. Which brings me back to Barry Jenkins. Consider his Oscar-winning Moonlight. He paces that movie to be a story told over two hours. His protagonist reveals himself over those two hours, 
we follow in that film, a boy who grows into a man and how his sexuality and access to love and the security that delivers plays into his evolution of that man that he becomes. Telling the story of him as a young boy isn't entirely fulfilling, same with the conclusion of the film, where the resonance of it is served because the characters have been built before our very eyes. Watching the, Watching the first installment especially of The Underground Railroad was difficult. Jenkins approaches the TV work in the same way that he's building characters in his movies. That distant, they reveal themselves to you, and Jenkins doesn't make it easy for us. This isn't like, say, the recent HBO series dealing with the African-American experience, Lovecraft Country. That told its story with a lot of bombast and genre elements that made some of the more difficult elements easier to take on. And I know it's absolutely unfair comparing those two shows, and yet I did it anyway. I'm a monster. But Jenkins doesn't make watching the show easy. The dialogue is heavily muted in scenes, it switches between moments of poetry on screen to some ghastly acts of human abuse, it's difficult to watch both in terms of its content and its presentational style. Now, when you sit down to watch The Underground Railroad, and you really should, know that you're not watching an ordinary TV show. The series is episodic, but it's also characters revealing themselves to you over time. It's not traditional TV, but it's also not a 10-hour movie. This is something else. If anything, look to this as a new way of watching TV. This is screen watching made for this era that we're in, as our TVs are getting larger, and we're starting to legitimately be able to give ourselves over to the screen in the home in the same way that we do in the cinema. The Underground Railroad is a tough trot. The pacing and design of it make it difficult to watch, but it's also thoroughly rewarding. To get the most out of this, you are going to need patience and to give yourself over entirely. But also, this is difficult in your lounge room with all of its many distractions. You have completely defined, in, in that comment there, you've completely defined for me why comments that um, television is the new cinema will never be 100% entirely true. That two-hour experience completely consumed with, with minimal distractions is what is what is the big point of difference between um cinema and television for me and that's and so um that's interesting that you come to that point of view for underground railroad because i think uh from what i read of it it's a it's a fascinating concept um sort of this alternate timeline universe where the the underground railroad is an actual railroad um so you know i think this is a, a really fascinating project my concern is that I found the first episode of this particularly to be an incredible slog. And as I mentioned in my little review sort of part of this, you are watching a lot of um, slave drama. They're almost tropes at this point. Like we've seen things like uh, 12 Years a Slave and we've seen like the brutality and the horribleness that these people went through as slaves on these plantations. And this is really kind of telling that story again until the last five minutes where the railroad becomes a feature of the story. And then the series kind of rockets on from there. But up until then, like, it's such a slog because we are expected to come to these characters who aren't exhibiting very much of a... Uh, there's nothing to really connect with them. This is a made-for-theatre experience, and I don't know if it necessarily works just yet. It'll be interesting to see what the turnoff rate is for people watching this first hour, because I found it, it was a high-quality slog, but it was stuff that I'd seen before, and he just doesn't quite give you enough to be able to latch into it and be able to get past the barrier that you're watching on a much smaller screen. Looking forward to seeing Underground Railroad Road. Uh, Barry Jenkins is an interesting filmmaker. It's on Amazon uh, as we speak. In cinemas this week is a little film called Camilla. There was some commotion about the house last night. Back to your room immediately. There was a carriage crash involving a young lady. Dr. Ray, I believe she will be fine. She seems to be unscathed. 
We don't know who she is, nor her driver. God rest her soul. This is the story of 15-year-old Lara. She lives in total isolation in her English family home deep in the the counties of of England. Miss Fontaine is her governess. Uh, Lara is, as most 15-year-olds are going through, becoming a young woman. She's having urges. She's having uh, desires and uh, very confusing ones at times. Um, Into the picture comes Carmilla, which is uh, the name of a a young French lady who... um, uh, stumbles into Lara's life and sets some fires a burning, as they say. So, imagine Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the um the fantastic film from a couple of years ago, mixed in with a little bit of sort of that queer fear element that um uh, that has that often sort of is at the centre of some terrific bits of cinema. And you have in Camilla a real surprise. This is a movie that is really, I guess, sort of filling a few screens. It's it's not a huge release by any means, but this is a a love story which also plays with um, elements of of vampirism um, and a very passionate love affair, same-sex love affair, that for the people of the time was uh, particularly challenging, and for some people nowadays is particularly challenging. But the way it's presented in Carmilla is a um, it, it's a beautiful story, beautifully shot. This is one of the most gorgeous looking films I've seen in a long time, and with two central performances that are just fantastic. So um, I don't think it's going to be in cinemas long, and I don't think it's in many cinemas. But I did want to point out Carmilla um, because it tells a, a really fascinating story in a really heartfelt and um, empathetic way. Simon, we're going to have to do it. Let's start talking about this reboot. Something a little bit different for Spiral, The Book of Sword. Now, we'll be watching the release of this film very closely. Uh, Dan and I are at loggerheads as to which film is going to be the bigger of the two. Can I explain here why I thought that Spiral would be a bigger film than Those Who Wish Me Dead? I really wish you wouldn't, but sure, (laughs) go ahead if you have to. Well, I started, like people have heard, I think last week or the week before, I did my review of Wrath of Man. And I was sitting in the audience for that, and it was a very full screening, and it was a very full screening of the absolute audience that would turn out for a Saw movie. So this is sort of young people aged between, you know, like 16 through to like early 40s. Like that was the bulk of the people in the Mm theatre I was with. When the trailer came on for Spiral from the Book of Saw, everyone stopped like with their phones. Like there seems to be, you know, when people talk about like that experience in a cinema where suddenly everyone is with something, I felt that in that cinema screening when the trailer for the Saw film came on, everyone just shut the hell up and I could just sense it was like an energy from everyone as they were kind of going, wait, this kind of looks better than we thought it would. And then the trailer finished and people just got back to nattering on. But there was just something happening in the theatre when I saw that trailer and maybe it was just in that one theatre. But if that can be replicated amongst what I would presume is the core Saw audience, and don't forget Saw pulled in quite a fair bit of cash over the years, like, if these people are going to turn out for it, like, I think it's probably going to be a pretty big hit on their hands. Two uh, two words. Trailer. It's a trailer, Dan. They're meant to sort of get that reaction from the audience that are watching them. Um, but as none of the say, other trailers did. No one very... gave a crap about <laughs> the rest of the trailers. But that one, hey, my friend. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Look, it's, a, it's the concern that I have is that, A... It's an old franchise. There hasn't been a whole lot of Saw going on lately. It is a horror <laughs> Reboot. Horror is not exactly uh, <laughs> horror is not exactly the, uh, the 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 prime movie going genre for a lot of people. Trust me, as the festival director of Monster Fest here in <laughs> Sydney, getting people out of their um, seats and into cinemas to see horror films is not always the easiest thing. 
Chris Rock doesn't do horror. I think there's a lot of elements against this film finding its way into the, the box office uh, good books. But we'll see. Hey, I might be wrong. Maybe Chris Rock is a bigger box office draw than Angelina Jolie, but... Who knows? We'll know in a week's time. We we'll do, might start doing box office reports. That's always interesting. But listen, we've got some special correspondence covering this. We're going to get a um, an immediate reaction from uh, our reviewers in the field. Let's cross now to Dan and Simon at Event Cinemas, George Street. Dan, are you there? Uh, roving reporter Dan Barrett here, joined by Simon Foster in the lobby of George Street Cinemas, Event Cinemas. I've been cinema's George Street. Hello, Dan. Hello, Dan and Simon back in the studio. Indeed. Uh, I hope they're well. Now, Simon, you and I, we just saw Spiral, which is from the is the Book of Saw. The Book of Saw. Yeah. It was, there was a half-hearted reboot a couple of years ago with Tobin Bell came back. He's the, the white albino guy who we know from all the other films. And, uh, and now we have Chris Rock, funny man Chris Rock. <laughs> Bathed in blood all through Saw, Spiral, Book of Saw. That's it. Lethal Weapon 4's Chris Rock. Now, Simon, this is my very first Saw movie. Oh, wow. I've not seen any of the previous 15 Saw movies. Give or take, yeah. Yeah, roughly. Uh, look, I have to say, well, do you want to give a plot synopsis? Let's I'll try and there. give a quick plot synopsis off the top of my head. We're literally just out of the cinema, so here goes. Chris Rock plays Detective Banks, the... Uh, son of uh, Marcus Banks, who was played by Samuel L. Jackson in the earlier films. Um, uh, This new Saw character, Spiral, is uh, bumping off police officers one by one in the most ridiculously hideous ways possible. Um, And what Eubanks has to do, not Eubanks, what's his name? Deke Eubanks has to do, Zeke Eubanks has to do. Like Ezekiel. (laughs) Like Ezekiel, of course, yes. Is to uh, find the Saw killer before... It impacts him, his father, and the rest of the force. And that's kind of the plot. Uh, you've missed out on an important factor. I don't think he's, anything was important. He's but teamed what, up with a new rookie cop. Ah, yes. The new rookie cop played by Max Minghella. Um, a very fresh-faced young addition to the Saw franchise. His father would be so proud. Yes, he would indeed. So what we have here is a... What do you, what do you like calling it? A reboot? Well, it's a reboot. Now, I didn't realise that Samuel L. Jackson was a recurring character throughout these Saw movies. Um, I know he was in some... I think Carrie Elwes was, was in the very first one. He was stuck tied up to a rope, tied up to a pipe somewhere. But Sure. Um, yeah, but I didn't... I, look, I don't have any great affection for the Saw series. The, it, it came out at the height of the torture porn uh, craze, which came and went in the blink of an eye about 20-odd years ago. Um, and it, the first one was a big hit, which I saw. The second one, I think I saw, and nothing since then. So um, I come to this... Ready for a reboot, I guess, but not that enthused. And afterwards, I've got to say, I'm still not that enthused. So I saw the trailer, because, look, the whole torture porn thing is what stopped me from seeing any Saw movies originally. Mm -hmm. Not really quite my bag. Uh, But I was kind of intrigued by the idea of Chris Rock, because it seemed like they were infusing this with something different. And I don't know if it actually is infused with something different, because I haven't seen a Saw movie before. But I saw there was definite attempts to, like... Have a bit more of a lively sort of a nature to some of the banter. Like, Chris Rock's putting in a very Chris Rock performance. I refer to him as Lethal Weapon Force Chris Rock because mm. he kind of is playing the same character again. He kind of is. The film opens on a Forrest Gump gag, which is literally Chris Rock's stand-up comedy, I would, yeah. I would say. And, and, and it sort of sets the tone with a bit of an Axel Foley vibe. Um, from that point on, it, it doesn't go down the, that path that much, I thought. Um, he gets to really play big and loud in this film. He's really playing to the back of the cinema. As is most of the film, it's directed in quite the most obnoxious style by Darren Bozeman, who's got a bit of a history with the Saw franchise. Um, yeah. The dialogue is definitely shonky. Oh, the, so shonky. The jokes don't land. No. 
But I kind of like the consistency of the tone of the rhythm of all the cops and the heightened... Like, it's not really heightened realism. It's the heightened sort of surrealism yeah. of the way the cops behave. And I actually like that. Like, it's definitely a choice that that's made in the film. And whether it pays off or not, I'm not entirely sure. But it, look, like, it looks like a really classy, interesting film. Flashbacks aside... Oh, wow. The flashbacks. My friend, they tell a whole... <laughs> they, they tell a whole... Almost an entire subplot. Well, really sort of the... The raison d'etre, is that how you say, for the, for the film's being is this backstory that involves police corruption and police violence. And, and I guess that makes it kind of timely and makes it sort of a reason that this film exists at all. If you're going to see one Black Lives Matter movie this year, oh boy. make it this one. Yeah, look, this is a film that I, I think wanted to be relevant, and, and, but then sort of only lent half into it. It, it sort of... I think the casting of Samuel L. Jackson and Chris Rock as, as black police officers, um, but taking on an entire corrupt, unnamed city force. It's just the Metro Police Force. They, I don't think they ever name a city in it, do they? I don't think so. Like, no. It felt very New York-y, but also it seemed very sort of sweaty New York-y. It, which yeah, well, the look you of occasionally see in films, but it didn't quite seem like New York sweat. Yeah, yeah. the look of the film is very... It's got that orange tinge to it to create that heat, and everybody's very sweaty and stinky through the whole film. Um, the only problem I have with Saw movies, not the only problem, but the main problem I have with Saw movies is that as gruesomely violent and as um, uh, grotesquely staged as the killings are, they're utterly ridiculous. How could little... <laughs> how could little well, are we going to give away the ending? We probably shouldn't give no, away a spoiler. We shouldn't do but that. There's, but there's, there's certainly moments when big, hulking, veteran cops are somehow strung up with all sorts of wires and tension ropes and um, by essentially you know, a very small human being. And it, it, it literally makes no sense. So I, I, got, I never got in sort of enthralled by the, the gruesomeness of it, other than on a sort of technical, practical level. In that regard, it's quite well done. Look, as a fan of the 1960s Batman, I do love a good death trap. <laughs> so, I mean, that was kind of exciting. And also, I haven't seen a finger trap employed in a film like this in such a way since Alyssa Jones back in the late 90s. I don't know what that means. Who's Alyssa Jones? <laughs> uh, there was an ongoing joke in the... Uh, which character was it specifically? Uh, it was in Chasing Amy. Oh, okay. Her nickname was Finger Trap. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, something engagement she was involved in. As a sure, yes. We're going to get yeah. letters. But okay, sure. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to let the reference it, but here we are. Uh, I don't know, like, this is obviously not a good movie. I don't know how it sits in the pantheon of Saw movies, but I also didn't hate it. Okay. Like, I, I'm not sure I'm recommending this to people, but I was looking at my watch only because I wanted to know how far into the movie we were, but I was never bored during it all. Okay, I probably was. I thought it had a really slow first act. I thought there was a lot of going to and from, to and froing between cops and trying to decide who's going to be next. Um, certainly a lot of screaming. As I said, Chris Rock just plays it <laughs> big and loud in this film. Um, yeah, I, I, it never engaged me. I'm not going to say it's a particularly bad film, or this, as you say, some of the dialogue clunks. And I, I think most of the dialogue clunks. Oh, some of the dialogue is just sort of serial level stuff like TV show level stuff so my, um, my favourite was because I love some exposition yeah. and boy did I enjoy Chris Rock <laughs> knocking on a door uh, his ex-wife manages to be at the house that he's visiting yeah. and they both address each other by first name yeah yeah yeah. look it's a, it's, a, it's a mess in that regard I think it as a reboot hey listen what we have to really ask are you still standing by your this is going to be the biggest film of the week well, um, look, I mean, I don't know. The crowd, like, there you was a pause at the You were pretty certain this morning, my no, friend. No. I mean, here's the thing. So, does cinema work in the way that it used to, which is that after the first weekend, word of mouth had carried to a second weekend? Yeah. 
Okay, but like we're really just looking out for this first weekend. Sure. And yep. There seems to be a lot of enthusiastic people upstairs. Okay. In a way that I'm not sure that uh, Angelina Jolie starring vehicle this week is necessarily going to draw out that same level of enthusiasm. I don't know. It'd be interesting to look at the box office. It will be very interesting. We'll do that next week on screen watching. Mm. Okay. Looking forward to it. Sorry, I brought you to Saw. Uh, look, I'm like, I'm glad that I came. All right. Okay. Otherwise, I would have paid money for this. Now, Simon, I don't know where you dug up those reviewers from earlier, but my God, they're charismatic. I understand they're exceptionally handsome. I don't know. I think they've got a big future ahead of themselves. I like them a lot. Yeah, we should use them again. They're good. It's been a big week for news. Let's kick things off because, look, there's no more sexy place to begin than talking about the, as you said here in the rundown, federal budget and the screen sector. Simon, <laughs> what worth it? Okay. Were people within the screen industry the winners or losers of this year's budget? Let's wait for everyone's pulses to settle down after that introduction. The budget delivered uh, $223 million to support the art sector. Now that's about $125 million for productions, for event, 50, nearly $51 million for local film and television, and a $20 million windfall for independent cinemas to help them out of the, um, uh, the post-pandemic lull. Um, what was most interesting uh, this time around was there's a, a refundable tax offset Sexy kids, a eh? refundable tax offset for video game development. Now, South Australia has had some um, tax breaks for the video game industry in the past, but it's never happened at a federal level. This is the first time that video game development will be um, will be helped out by uh, ScoMo and his team. So that's that's a big thing. It's going to kick in in 2022. How much of that is actually rolled back, and what really hits the the, the video game industry is still to be determined. But overall. Not a bad budget for the for the screen sector, um, which is good because they certainly need it after the, the 2020 that was. When I hear the phrase refundable tax offset for the video game development, uh, for the video game uh, sector, I can't help but feel about the producer offset that existed for film producers in the 70s, which produced some really wild and innovative Australian films. So if they can mm. kind of stimulate a very similar type of uh, production happening within the video game sector in Australia... Like, I think it might be a thing that actually gets a lot of Australian producers on the map in a way that it's uh, industry swamped by a lot of industry, uh, like a lot of international players rather than homegrown Aussies. I think you're right. You're talking about the 10BA days, the 10BA tax incentive, which got, which really gave birth to the Ausploitation era. Just a lot of people trying to get as many films made as possible to get their tax dollars back. Um, and there were some clunkers, but there were some some great films that came out of that that high sort of point that that golden years of, of genre cinema here in australia so yeah hopefully the it will bring out as you say the, the really imaginative really um exciting uh, video game developers that's it out of that era we got picnic at hanging rock but then some really great films like turkey shoot <laughs> that's exactly right you you hit the nail right on the uh, the forehead of the escaping prisoner in turkey shoot fashion hey uh speaking of escaping prisoners how's this for a segue nbc right. has dumped the golden globes yeah yeah, uh, I didn't see it coming, but I'm not surprised at all that it's actually happened. Um, what are some of the details of this? Because I, I think, in, as you reported in the Always Be Watching newsletter, there's, you know, they're going to come back to, around to it in 2023 and just see exactly how much the Hollywood Foreign Press has done. But it's a big road for the HFPA to, to, to go down and to climb to get back to the status that they, they once held. Okay, so let's give some background on this and then we can talk about the future of it. So the background is that Hollywood Foreign Press Association, it's a group of 85-ish um, foreign uh, reviewers, uh, people writing about the industry. 
these are people all based primarily in Los Angeles as well as a little bit of other overseas representation, but they're people that cover Hollywood. Now, as we've found out in recent months, everyone, as like every member of the HFPA, are white. They are reporting from their foreign lens. So just because they aren't black doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have a um, right to be covering it or whatever. But at the same time, if there's so much output coming from Hollywood, which has a strong sense of um, representation from African-Americans, and none of that is being featured at all with anything that's being nominated or winning awards at the Golden Globes, there's clearly something wrong with the system. There is clearly a bias taking place. And if that's being reflected on screen and reflected in the awards being nominated, there's clearly an issue. So Hollywood's up in arms about that. In the last week, we saw players like Netflix. We saw Warner Media, which own HBO and HBO Max. Uh, we've seen a bunch of other sort of smaller companies. I think A24 might've put their name in the ring as well. Big companies saying, hey, look, we're not going to deal with the HFPA because you know, there's this representation issue. And then there's also the sort of secondary issue, which is a lot of the kickbacks that the HFPA have been getting over the years. And it's probably a bit rich for Hollywood to say, look, sure, we've been giving them kickbacks for years, but we don't like that. But they can sort of glom onto the representation issue. So for the many problems that the HFPA have, this is the one that is pretty much the guaranteed things get the industry up in arms about it. So if they're not happy with it, NBC a couple of months ago said, look, we're going to give them until May to sort their problems out. HFPA, sort your shit out, is basically what they mm. said. HFPA, they made some changes, but NBC looked at it saying, look, any changes that you've made here, that's not going to be reflective enough in 2022. So we're going to put the kibosh on it. So next year, there'll not be any Golden Globes, but we're definitely coming back to it in 2023. Now, the question is, will they actually be coming back to it in 2023? And mm. think about this. So the NBC at the moment is spending $60 million a year to broadcast the Golden Globes. They've got an eight-year deal, so I think they've got six years left on that deal. So they're spending $60 million a year. In terms of ad revenue, and ad revenue for these award shows is, uh, well, for any live show, the ad revenue is quite good. They can charge fairly high rates for it. Viewership turnout's really quite good, except they only brought in $47.5 million at the Golden Globes in 2020. So I'm trying to remember my years. What year are we even in right now? Uh, <laughs> So 2020, they only brought in $47.5 million for ad revenue. Okay, if they're spending $60 million to do it, that means they're down $12.5 million. But there's a fair bit of prestige that comes with hosting these award shows and it puts them in the center of the industry. So there's still value for NBC, even if it isn't that sort of fiscal uh, benefit there. In terms of the HFPA, like that $60 million that they're receiving, half it goes to the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. The other half goes to Dick Clark Productions, who mount the show. Dick Clark Productions are spending about 10 to $20 million to make it. So let's split the difference and say it costs $15, $15 million to make it. They get $15 million in terms of profit to host the thing. So the only people that are really winners from this is the HFPA and Dick Clark Productions. So you sort of have to wonder what benefit is it for NBC to keep on going if they're facing this, where there was prestige in hosting it, but there's fewer and fewer people turning out to watch these award shows on a regular basis. Will they come back next year? Maybe, that's a question mark. Okay, will they come back? Don't know. But it has been declining year on year. And then on top of that, if you've got all of the industry saying, hey, we don't want anything to do with this whatsoever, it's got a pretty big stink around these awards. Like there's the actual benefit they were getting from the awards, which wasn't monetary, it was reputational. That's gone now as well. So NBC, you would have to imagine that in 2022, are going to do one of two things. They'll either put in another live show of some sort of a description to try to plug the revenue shortfall they're going to get by not hosting these awards, 
or they're going to do what the industry is really sort of scuttling around in the last 24 hours. And you've got all these other um, awards that are handed out. Because don't forget, in Australia, we see the Golden Globes, we see the Oscars, we see the Emmys, we see the um, Grammys, and one or two other things. I think the SAG Awards occasionally get broadcast here on Foxtel, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that's always a given every year either. I'm not too sure how that works. But you've got those, but then you've got like this whole slew of other awards that are handed out regularly. And all of those guys are now saying, look, we could mount an award show that NBC could broadcast. So they're all in talks with NBC right now to try to get their award show into contention as something they could do. Whether NBC wants to do an award show, that's the question, because as I said, there's been declining ratings for that, so who knows what they might try. I think it was an extraordinarily telling statement or a telling move on Tom Cruise's part to hand back his trophies. That's that's essentially cutting all ties with the, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association in terms of uh, his star power and, and um, a real sort of indication to the global market that we're not going to stand for... Uh, you know, the, the stars of Hollywood aren't going to stand for what the Hollywood foreign press has come to stand for. Like, he's um, one of the Cruise... last megastars left. Like, a star of his wattage. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's my point. He's, a, he's, he's really the only sort of mega movie star who opens films around the world at the moment. Um, when he first came into, you know, stardom, there were the Hanks and the Schwarzeneggers and the Julia Roberts and all those types who were, who were still opening films. Um the big stars at the box office at the moment are Spider-Man and, and um, the Hulk and Iron Man. So um, Cruz saying that is, is, is Cruz doing what he did in handing back the trophies is saying, um, no, I'm not going to be part of your global entertainment um, movement. Um, things have got to change. So it's a, it's a, I wouldn't want to be a member of the Hollywood foreign press. I never have, to be honest with you. But at this stage, I think they're, um, they're in their death throes. Can I talk to you about something which I just thought was a great idea? So when I come across a great TV format, I like to sort of shout it out because I just think this is very clever. Tessa sure. Thompson, who you'd know from Thor Ragnarok and Creed and a whole bunch of other well-known Terrific movies. Terrific actress. Absolutely adorable. Love her. Yeah. Love Tessa Thompson. In the spirit of shows like Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee and the show Iconoclasts, if you ever saw that. Yeah. I think SBS were broadcasting it here for a few years. Sure. In the style of those shows, she wants a series where people come together and do a jigsaw puzzle together. So it's going to be a new show. (laughs) It's being greenlit by Hulu. And I think this is a fantastic idea for a show. It's really simple because you've got two people who are just engaging in a conversation together. So much like Comedians in Cars and your Iconoclasts. She's bringing two people together from different sort of um, people in the public eye, but aren't necessarily both musicians or both actors. Like, you know, you could have, um, you know, a well-known philosopher, you know, meeting up with um, Bob Dylan. I don't know, whomever. But, you know, you've just got like two... Because we know Bob Dylan puzzles. loves his puzzles. He does love his puzzles. But like everyone loves doing puzzles. But like the thing with their jigsaw puzzle is they're so low stakes. Like you don't have to be that actively involved in the act that they're engaged in. But at the same time, they facilitate conversation because you're doing this sort of mindless thing. A great opportunity to have a chat while you're doing it. I just think it's a great so thing. So half hour format? Uh, who knows? It could be half an hour. It could be an hour. Probably half an hour. Sure. But where okay. I think this is really clever is you've got that simple mechanism, but the problem with every show, which is an interview-based thing, is it's always a very false end to the conversation. Because it ends because they can only film so much to fill the half hour and record too much and like it's just a waste of everyone's time. So it's always yeah. like a bit of an artificial ending to all of these. But you've got an actual end point here because they finished the jigsaw. That's a good idea. Yeah. That's, that's good programming. Excellent idea. Who's got that? Hulu. Uh, so that's Hulu. So it doesn't have a name yet. 
Uh, she's been conning this home puzzle talk, but whether it's actually called that or not, we'll find out. But, you know, we'll find this because, I mean, I can't imagine there's a lot of production time that goes into this. So once I've got some people together in a COVID-safe environment, like, you know, I'd expect to see the show probably streaming sometime by the end of the year. Every year, uh, Variety newspaper, the Hollywood Showbiz Bible, as they call it, uh, puts out a Power of Women edition. Um, and to go with that, the Lifetime Channel in the US presented Variety's Power of Women, The Comedians, uh, which aired on the Lifetime Channel on Monday. Um, uh, Michaela Cole, Mindy Kaling, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Kate McKinnon, Maya Rudolph and Sophie Vergara all were being interviewed by, um, in a very sort of genial way, in a very sort of friendly manner by, by their close associates, friends and family members talking about what turned them into comedians. The reason I want to bring this up is because the show also wanted the life of the great Gilda Radner. Now, if you don't know Gilda Radner, she was an original Saturday Night Live cast member. Her and Chevy Chase were the breakout stars of that first season of, of Saturday Night Live back in the 70s. Um, she went on to marry uh, Gene Wilder, but sadly, very sadly, died of cancer um, in the mid-80s. Um, and her memory was uh, celebrated in this uh, Lifetime special. Tina Fey paid tribute to um, Gilda Radner's remarkable contributions to comedy and to charity. The Gilda Radner's uh, Club Metro Detroit is a foundation for cancer patients and their families. So um, this special, I hope we get to see it out here. I don't know if the Lifetime specials come to Australia. Um, I'll try and hunt it down and let people know via the Facebook page exactly where we can watch this show. But um, there are some clips on the Variety website from the interviews and um, and if you haven't seen any of Gilda Radner's work, certainly jump on the YouTube and see what you can. She was an extraordinary comedic talent um, and uh, was destined for, for great, great things, but um, unfortunately taken away from us by uh, hashtag fuck cancer. And speaking of great things, let's talk about Grey's Anatomy. Well, let's talk about Grey's Anatomy. Uh, breaking news, is it still on? Look, it is still on. Here's the thing. So Grey's Anatomy, when we talk about all the big shows of the moment, people don't talk about Grey's Anatomy. It's just one of these things that's a reliable, high ratings um, magnet, and it's outside of the demo. Like, we're outside of the demo for Grey's Anatomy. Okay, Clearly, we're, just, yes, we we're just not the audience that that sort of show is picking up. But it's one of these shows, kind of like your NCISs and your Law & Order SVUs. It's one of these shows which kind of just keeps on chugging along and reliably keeps on turning out the same audience for it year in, year out, and people are invested in this program. Now, is the Dr. Question Dreamy has been, still on there? Is it still a Dr. Dreamy? Is he still well, around? McDreamy they killed off a number of years ago, but oh. uh, Patrick... Uh, Dempsey. Dempsey did come back for it in a dream sequence recently, so the uh, door's Patrick open Ewing for more style, McDreamy. Or is it a McDream sequence? I'm not sure. Anyway... Uh, Grey's Anatomy, the question was, is the show going to continue? Because with the program, you can't actually really continue it without its series star, Ellen Pompeo. You could, but she's very much the drawcard for this program, and she's the linchpin sure. that everything kind of hooks on. So without her, there kind of is no show. And she has been incredibly well compensated over the years. And she wasn't for a while. She spoke out very publicly about it, and you know that certainly fixed things for her somewhat. Uh, but she's been open to saying, hey, look, you know, I'm doing the show for the money. I think I deserve this and whatever. And, you know, the show makes a lot of money for the owners of the program. And so that Season money should 18. flow to her. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's heavily syndicated. That's bringing in huge money in, syndic in syndication revenue. I mean, these shows also cost more the longer that they run because the cast mm. expects to be paid more and take a bit of a lion's share of uh, what's going on and the various producers get their cuts as well, et cetera, et cetera. 
So anyway, big news this week was that Grey's Anatomy, Grey's Anatomy is coming back for season 18. Okay, so that's pretty big news in terms of the TV that landscape. big news, sure. Yeah. Even if it's not big news in terms of what you and I are watching, Simon, it's big news. Something that I know that you're a hardcore fan of, though, is Days of Our Lives. And Do, love it. Exactly. You're clearly a reader of TV Soap magazine from back in the day, sure. if you're calling it Duel. Days of Our Lives, currently on season 56, they shut down production recently. So the things to keep in mind, and I'm fascinated by daytime soaps because this is one of the longest running TV genres and the shows have been just equally as long running. So these soaps often started pre-television and there were soaps like uh, One Life to Live, for example, which started mm. out as a radio serial, TV started, and then that soap jumped over. Days of Our Lives is a, practically a baby of the daytime TV soaps. Uh, a whole bunch of the older wow. ones have like passed on recently. But there was, if you look through a US schedule this time, say 10 years ago, you would have found like about 10 to 15 of these daytime soaps. Most yes. of those have gone away. There's only a handful of them left. Days of Our Lives is probably the granddaddy of them now. Days of Our Lives, production shut down. People weren't sure, is it actually coming back? But they've signed a deal. It's coming back not only for season 57, but it'll be back for season 58 as well. Uh, so that's a two-year run we've got left. And then we'll see where things are at after that because TV landscape is shifting. Down. We could shut the podcast down right now and end on that high note. That is about as happy <laughs> as I've been in a long time. Season 50. I know you think I'm joking, no. but Duel was a huge part. I used to take sickies from school so I could catch up with what was going on days of our lives. So um, oh, that's just great news. Season 58, congratulations, days of our lives. Are there any remaining cast members in there? Oh, look, you're really sort of... Remaining uh, cast members, any original cast members, I should say. Look, honestly, I'm not too sure. I'm sure there there's certainly going to be people in that cast that have been with the show for like 25 years plus. Wow. Like, no doubt. God bless them. Although, I mean, 25 years plus is only really joining in 95. I'm sure there's probably like 35, 40 year plus cast members still on that show. But at the same time, like, you know, the great thing about these soaps as well is that even if an actor moves on from the show, the character can often still continue on. So hashtag dream sequence. That's what they do. Hashtag McDream sequence. (laughs) McDream sequence. Simon, each week we take a look at the week ahead, what we're going to be watching on the various screens, big, small, and in between. Okay, let's take a look first, maybe some TV, new and returning. In the review earlier for the Underground Railroad, I talked about this being the big show of the week. And from an artistic standpoint, I think that's definitely true. But the show that's probably going to get a lot more eyeballs on it is Holston, which is a new biopic from Ryan Murphy. It's a one-season run starring Ewan McGregor. And it's about the... uh, I don't even really know Holston, to be honest. Like, I understand he's a fairly big deal in the fashion world, but I don't mm-hmm. really know him. But I'm curious about checking this out because a Ewan McGregor TV series, I'm there for. Yeah, he was a, a big hit in the, the Fargo series a few years back. Um, thumbs up, thumbs down on Ryan Murphy because I've um, obviously loved the O.J. Simpson thing that he did, but everything since has been a little bit insufferable. Okay, so I mean, the uh, People versus O.J. Simpson was a mid-career thing, and it wasn't really Ryan Murphy making that show. It was the guys behind Edward, uh, yeah, Larry Krakowski, and Scott Alexander. Uh, so it was really those two guys that were behind that show. Ryan Murphy did produce it, and I think directed one or two episodes of yeah. that season, but it wasn't really sort of in line with the Ryan Murphy shows generally. Uh, Ryan Murphy, for me, big thumbs down. I do not care for Ryan Murphy's shows generally. I love that O.J. Simpson series, and mm. it's been... I think every series of his has promise, 
But every time I watch it, like it just never quite connects with me. But that's yeah. fine. Like not everyone's for everyone, and Ryan Murphy does connect with uh, certain viewers, so that's all cool. Um, I'll give this a look, but I'm not expecting to enjoy it that much because of that Ryan Murphy connection for sure. Uh, there's a horror fantasy series on Netflix called The Mystic River. Now, we don't often see television coming out of the African continent, or Nigeria in particular, but this is the story of a pregnant woman who vanishes from a remote village and the mystical forces at play that um, may or may not be responsible for that. As I said, Nigerian television is a, is a, a new beast to me, so I'm keen to see what this horror fantasy series has on offer. Season 1 is on Netflix, and I think, and I may be wrong on this, but I think it's part of Netflix's um, campaign to expand into all sorts of different television markets and make homegrown um, uh, productions in those markets. So it's called The Mystic River Season 1 is on Netflix. Can I make a strong recommendation? Download an app called Demand Africa. It's a streaming service that has nothing but content from across Africa. So this is scripted series. This is, I think, I can't remember if there were movies on there. I don't think there is, but it's lots of lifestyle stuff as well. And it's a really interesting look at an area of the world that we don't see on TV anywhere near often enough. And even in Australia, we've got services like SBS. The amount of African TV that we see there is pretty much non-existent. So there's a lot of, there's a really vibrant TV sector, but we just see none of it. So Demand Africa, it's well worth a look. Great call out, mate. Good one. Um, yeah. Domina season one is coming to stand. This is the life and rise of Livia Drusilla, the powerful wife of the Roman Emperor Augustus Caesar. It stars the great um, actress Kasia Smutniak. I just love saying it. Kasia Smutniak and also Game of Thrones' Liam Cunningham is in there. Uh, season one premieres on stand in the days ahead. Uh, Miss Smutniak, what do we know her from? Because I have to say I'm not that familiar. Don't know. Do you just like her name? I just like the name. Pretty pictures on the internet, and I love saying Kasia Schmutniak. Uh, and she's, by all accounts, the trailer for Domina is quite a striking production. It looks like it's going to play to that that Game of Thrones crowd. Cool. Well, speaking of striking figures, we've got Belushi, which is the feature documentary about the life, the wildlife. Wildlife. He's got a wild life. He wasn't really wildlife, although, you know, maybe that line does blur a little bit with Belushi. Uh, But anyway, it's a feature look at him, and I've been wanting to see this doco for a while because by all reports, it is very good. So definitely check that one out. Uh, The Woman in the Window, this was a uh, theatrical production starring Amy Adams that was due to go to cinemas, but it's been uh, bumped down to the Netflix channel. Um, An agoraphobic woman, played by the aforementioned Adams, she lives alone. She starts spying on her new neighbours only to to witness a disturbing act of violence, says in the synopsis. Uh, Hashtag rear window. Why am I saying hashtag all day? I don't know. Um, uh, This is very much a, a sort of a remake of the rear window concept. I'm keen to see it because I'm an AB Annis fan and I know there's some good cast members in there, but the fact that it was hooked, hooked to the um, the Netflix channel, we'll wait and see how good it is. Best Amy Adams film, go. Well, I'm going to say Arrival because I do head up a science fiction film festival, but I have a very soft spot for Enchanted, the film that really sort of made her a star. Um, but no, I will go with uh, Denny Villeneuve's Arrival. Oh, I just noticed she was in The Muppets as well, which I love that film. So yeah, there's lots of good stuff in there. A lot of Oscar-winning stuff as well, the American Hustle and Nocturnal Animals and stuff like that. Um, Are you going to say Hillbilly Elegy? You're going to say Hillbilly Elegy, aren't you? No, I was going to say the correct answer is Talladega Nights, the ballad of of Bobby... Ricky Bobby. Bobby. Ricky Bobby. Bobby. Uh, I also would have accepted her role in The Master. Yes, yes. Certainly her best acting was, was The Master. That was an extraordinary film. 
Um, but yeah, no, I'll stick with Arrival uh, with an asterisk for Enchanted. No, I love Arrival. That actually is one of my all-time favourites. What were we talking about again? Oh, we were finishing out the movie's debuting on streaming and a film that I've genuinely, absolute 100% legit been looking forward to is a film called Saint Maud. Now, I don't actually know anything about Saint Maud and I'm about to read a paragraph here that's going to reveal what this movie's about. But I've just heard everyone talking about this film and I just want to give it a look. Uh, Maud is a reclusive young nurse who pursues a pious path of Christian devotion. Mm-hmm. Now charged with hospice care of Amanda, a retired dancer ravaged by cancer, Maud's fervent faith quickly inspires an obsessive conviction. I was very fortunate to have seen this uh, um, only a matter of days ago on the big screen up at the Screen Wave Film Festival in Coffs Harbour. It is an extraordinary film. Um, her descent into religious fervor and uh, the obsession that starts to form based on that for Amanda is just um, one of the most chilling depictions of uh, mental health and, and um, uh, madness that you are that you are likely to see the last 30 seconds of this film will have you absolutely f- pushing backwards into your couch so it comes to Amazon Prime uh, this week it's called Saint Maud uh, one and it's a, a debut film for the young director whose name I can't remember but do look it up and, and remember it because she's got big things ahead of her yeah reviews for this one are just rapturous of course we've been talking about the small screen but what's happening on a big screen Simon what is playing around Australia shall we kick off with finding you Yes, well, those that visit our Facebook page, you'll know that we've been giving tickets away to Finding You. This is a beautiful Notting Hill-like love story about a violinist played by Rose Reed. She has a chance encounter with a heartthrob movie star played by Jedediah. Gee, you don't see that name very often. Good acre. Um, And as much as they try to stay in love, his celebrity drives them apart and she has to do all she can to keep that bond. Like I said, this is very much from the Nutting, Nutting, Notting Hill mould um, and I think we still have it up on our Facebook page for in-season passes to, to get along to this one. I believe that Nutting Hill was the porn parody. Yeah, I knew you weren't going to let that. I knew you weren't going to let that go. It's EMA, called, a dancer deals with a fool. First of all, it's called Emma, not EMA. Well, shouldn't Emma have two M's? It's a Spanish film. That's how. That's a very Spanish thing to do to drop one of the M's. They do it all the time. Okay, fine. What's Emma about? <laughs> Tell me about this movie. All right, Simon. now this is from director Pablo Lorraine. Now he's kind of a big deal. He directed Jackie. Uh, Natalie Portman got an Oscar nomination out of that. He is the director of the upcoming Apple Plus TV series Lysy's Story, the Stephen King film with Julianne Moore. And he's also got Kristen Stewart in the Diana Spencer biopic Spencer. So he's kind of a big deal. He made this little Spanish film um, a couple of years back starring Mariana de Girolamo as a young woman who um, can't have children, has a terrible incident that uh, sees her losing her adopted child, um, but she's a dancer and she often falls into uh, these fantasy dance sequences Um to help her cope with this this terrible life she's having. It sounds heavy. It is heavy. It's got Gail Garcia Bernal in there to help her sort of um, come out of this terrible funk. Um, so it's a tough watch, but the dance sequences are beautiful and, and Mariana in the lead is a, is a terrific lead actress. So um, if you want something a little bit different, the Spanish film Ima. A couple of retro screenings as well. We've got at the Dandy Cinemas uh, playing Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is very exciting. They've got that on Saturday night at 8.45 and Sunday at 4pm. I uh, got Jurassic Park, which is playing in 35mm at the Ritz Randwick in Sydney. So that's on May 20 at 
Uh, a little film called Greenfeld is playing at the Lunar Leaderville Cinema in Perth. Now, this is a WA shot film. Probably won't get a release on the East Coast, which is unfortunate. It's made by a Danish filmmaker called Julius Telma, all shot in Meriden in Western Australia. Um, sort of the, the uh, studies in masculinity and identity within a small Australian town. Um, always a popular subject matter, we call Wake in Fright. So uh, get along to see Greenfield at Lunar Leaderville in Perth. And Movies at Manly, now at St Matthew's Church uh, on the corner of Darley Road in the Corso in Manly, um, there's a new screenings, there's a series of screenings of classic films from all around the world. It's significant because um, the first film ever shot in Australia, a 1896 newsreel called Passengers Alighting from the Paddle Steamer at Manly Wharf, um, was filmed mere metres away from this church, and uh, it's a, a significant sort of piece of history in Australian film culture, as is There Are Weird Mob, which is screening this Saturday from 12pm. Then we're screening the classic The Phantom of the Opera from 3 o'clock and Jazz on a Summer Day at 6pm that evening. That's running right through till the uh, middle of July, so do check out Movies at Manly um, for a full lineup of the films being screened there. Simon, this week in history, uh, one of the big dates here, May 14, 1998, was the anniversary of Seinfeld's two-part episode, The Finale, which aired on NBC. Apparently had 76.3 million viewers tune in, which is, I believe, 190% more people than watched the last Golden Globes. Uh, commercials were priced about $2 million for 30 seconds. And Simon, I think worth noting is that on that day, I was expecting a big day of news about the Seinfeld finale. And then Frank Sinatra had to up and die on the same day, a couple of hours before the finale. And I really feel that it just, you know, Always. took the wind out of the show sales. But still lots of people tuned in, so whatever. Always Always grabbing headlines at Frank Sinatra. Jeez, I tell you what. Mickey Mouse makes his first appearance in the silent film Plain Crazy on May 15 in 1928. And then one year later, the very first Academy Awards on May 16, in which uh, the film Wings, its star Emile Jennings and the wonderful Janet Gaynor both win the, uh, the lead categories. Now, that leads me to some Uma Oprah, because David Letterman... On 20th of May 2015, he hosted The Late Show with David Letterman for the last time after 33 years, which I believe oh. makes him the longest continuous host in US Late Night. Now, I want to backtrack and talk to you about the Mickey Mouse making his first appearance in a silent film playing crazy, because people listening sure. will be saying, wait a second, but is Steamboat Willie not his first appearance in film? Ah. And I would contend yes, because while Plain Crazy was made first and was set to be released first, it only played to a test audience and wasn't actually released into the wild. So I would say that Steamboat Willie is actually his first movie, as opposed to the one that was made first and intended to be first. Well, that saved a lot of us reading a lot of angry emails from Mickey Mouse fans everywhere. So thank you, Dan, for clearing that up. That's important <laughs> news. Um, <laughs> Uh, let's quickly rip through the birthdays. May 14, there's that man, George Lucas, a little film director who made a movie called Star Wars. He was born in 1944. Kate Blanchett, as I mentioned, born on May 14 in Melbourne uh, in 1969. Henry Fonda, May 16, born in Nebraska, one of the great big screen actors of all time. He died in 1982, but he was born in 1905, so that's a good inning. Um, May 18, Tina Fey was born in Pennsylvania in 1970. Oh, and I put this one in especially because we can both do our Jimmy Stewart impersonation. He was born in May 20, 1908. Jimmy Stewart. Look it up, kids. Look, I'm not going to do my Jimmy Stewart because I just don't want to embarrass myself that greatly. 
George Lucas, I think it's exciting to not only mention his birthday this week, but just revel in the fact that he's still alive nine years after he thought he was going to die. What do you mean? Uh, there's a Seth Rogen story that's doing the rounds because Seth Rogen has just released what's ostensibly a autobiography of sorts. And basically his mm. book is basically him telling stories about celebrities he's met along the way and how weird the experiences have been. And he recounts a story about meeting George Lucas in the oh, meeting room of Spielberg's production company. And George Lucas is telling both uh, Seth Rogen and his writing partner, Evan Spiegel, I think is his name. Uh, but he's talking to Seth and Evan about the fact that 2012, everyone's going to die and there's going to be tectonic like plate shifting and there's earthquakes coming oh, and this... he's going to be escaping on a spaceship. So I'm not <laughs> sure what was happening that day for George Lucas, but it was a pretty big day. Oh, he should try decaf. Poor George. And anyway. Speaking of big oh. days, I've got a big one ahead of me, so it's time to sign off. This must happen. So this is the artificial ending. If we were playing a jigsaw, things would be okay right here, but we don't really know it. So we've just got to artificially create the fact that I'm going to tell people... Thank you for listening to Screen Watching. I'm Dan Barrett. I'm there on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. You can start your day with my free newsletter, Always Be Watching. Subscribe at alwaysbewatching.com. It covers the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. And on Fridays, we've got the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launched that very week. You can read my words over at Screen Space. That's screen-space.net, where I rant on about all things cinema. You can go to Twitter at Simon R. Foster One. Please visit the Screen Watching Facebook page and like us there. Steady stream of screen news from around the world and I will just jump in quickly that ticket packages have gone on sale for my Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival so if you're around in November come and say hi and watch some of the best sci-fi movies from around the world go to that website sydneysciencefictionfilmfestival.com to start buying your tickets but in the meantime screen watching is really what you're all about so you can follow it in your favourite podcast app load it up now hit the follow button and the magic will just start flowing Simon Foster it's been real it's always real, Dan. Thank you, mate. Thank you, screen watchers. Tune in next week. Uh, I don't know what we're doing next week, but we'll uh, we'll make it up along the way. Probably watch some TV and maybe some movies. Yeah, let's break format. See you, mate. Bye bye. I feel much better. Have you kids met Keanu?